Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. As a young U.S. diplomat working in Switzerland, Sandra Taylor fell in love with wine while visiting the nearby Burgundy region of France. Sandra is now CEO of Sustainable Business International, a consulting business that assists clients at various stages of environmental sustainability and corporate social responsibility, primarily in the food and beverage sector. Sandra has studied wine extensively for many years. She completed the French Wine Scholars course and is a graduate of the Wine MBA program at the Bordeaux School of Management in France. Sandra has also been a senior executive with the Starbucks Coffee Company, where she led global corporate responsibility and sustainability in coffee supply chain, and with Eastman Kodak Company, where she oversaw global public affairs and corporate citizenship. She continues to speak and teach globally about sustainability in wine, and has literally written the book on sustainability in the wine business. It's called The Business of Sustainable Wine. And it, like Sandra, is a wealth of important information about sustainability in the wine business. We talk about many of the issues around sustainability, including how to define it as more than just a marketing buzzword, why wine is uniquely positioned to capture consumer attention and move all industry towards sustainability, how important it is for the wine industry to set an example of sustainability, and why sustainable practices ultimately result in more delicious wine. Sandra is clearly a brilliant mind who loves wine, and we barely scratch the surface of her extensive knowledge about sustainability in wine. Enjoy. Sandra Taylor, welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast, and thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You, um, yeah, mine too. You are the president and CEO of Sustainable Business International, and you wrote the book on sustainability in the wine business, literally. Your, your book is called The Business of Sustainable Wine, How to Build Brand Equity in the 21st Century Wine Industry, in a 21st Century Wine Industry. And you have some pretty deep experience with sustainability in the business world. Um, can you, just by introduction, sort of talk about that experience and how your career developed and what led to your interest uh, in directing that sustainability focus toward wine and the wine industry? Okay. Yeah, I, I started my career, I have a law degree, um, but I didn't really want to be a lawyer, not a traditional lawyer. So I went to work for the State Department, uh, U.S. State Department, and I had an assignment overseas in Geneva. Um, you were a diplomat uh, or a junior diplomat? diplomat yeah. Or... yeah. That sounds like a fun job. It really was. I was, um, so my, the job that took me to Geneva was, I was, they, the title I had was International Economist, um, nice. but I worked on economic and social policy. Um, for the U.S. mission to the U.N. in New York and the U.S. mission to the U.N. in Geneva. And while in Geneva, I worked on things like Law of the Sea and um, probably the precursor, maybe three times removed from the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, the U.N. has always worked on uh, development in um, third world countries, uh, emerging democracy, emerging economies. But I was uh, on the weekends, I would go to France with friends, European colleagues. And that's what, where I kind of fell in love with wine. Um, I didn't know a lot about wine, but I 
um, I learned a lot, obviously, about wine traveling in Burgundy. So to this day, Pinot Noir is still probably my favorite uh, wine because I was introduced to it in Burgundy. Um, And so I was a, you know, a collector, an enthusiast, a hobbyist, I guess, for many years. And at the same time, I was also working on uh, sustainable issues. I left the government and went to work for corporations. And I've been working in this space for a long time. So um, when I first started, we called it corporate citizenship and eventually corporate social responsibility. And and fortunately for me, and I worked for you know, a chemical company. So I was, I, I describe it as being on the dark side. Uh, and then I went to work for Eastman Kodak Company. Um, a lot of that was philanthropy and Kodak was a great philanthropist. But again, it too was a chemical company. Uh, and then I was recruited, literally headhunted, uh, to Starbucks. And so this was like emerging from the dark to the light, I describe it, uh, because I was hired <laughs> to uh, run sustainability for Starbucks uh, globally. And that was supply coffee and cocoa and tea supply chains, how to integrate sustainability into those supply chains, uh, corporate giving, community affairs, kind of your traditional um, CSR role. Uh, But I spent a lot of time on coffee and defending the company um, from fair trade activists, but also figuring out how we could be more responsible because the company was and still remains uh, very committed to being socially responsible and sustainable. So here I was working on a code of conduct for coffee, a way for coffee to be for the coffee we purchased um, in Central America, in East Africa, in Indonesia, helping farmers be more environmentally sustainable and socially responsible. Um, and then I started thinking, you know, my favorite fun thing, wine, you know, what's going on <laughs> in the wine industry? Uh, and to my amazement, I discovered there were a lot of similarities between coffee and wine. And that's yeah, kind of how I did it, how I got into it. That's that's very cool. Yeah, I mean, just about those similarities. I have a neighbor who's an international coffee consultant. And the more he and I talk, I'm just like, man, that's exactly what we do in wine. <laughs> like everything that you're talking about is exactly yeah. what's done in wine. Like from the fermentation and different styles of fermentation. Now there's new trends in fermentation, things like that, the way that's tasted and the terroir aspect of it and blind tastings and everything that goes into that. So I, I imagine that was probably an easy uh not transition, but just easy overlay onto wine uh, in terms of familiarity and things like that. But then you also went on and uh, got a degree in Bordeaux in wine business, right? Yeah. I, um, you know, I had worked in business for many, many years, um, you know, including Starbucks. And when I left Starbucks and decided to start consulting with companies, a variety of companies from different industries, I also was, I became a French wine scholar. I took the this, this French wine scholar course. The first time it was given in the U.S., took the exam, all that. And I loved it. Um, so I, you know, I'm a French wine scholar. <laughs> Probably know more about French wine than maybe any other type. But I <laughs> um, was really excited about wine and wanted to pursue wine, um, you know, beyond just as a hobby or as a collector. And uh, but I want—I wanted a credential in wine. I didn't 
want I would I would meet so many people in wine shops or at wine tastings who were self uh, appointed experts in wine and I just didn't want to be one of those I wanted a commercial <laughs> you, you know yes I mean. yeah yeah, yeah um, absolutely yeah so and I also was not interested in hospitality so I really I'm a business person I really like the study of business and also I just felt like um, it was an opportunity for me to travel to wine regions, to meet wine people. It was an amazing degree. It's the Bordeaux School of Management. It's now part of the Kedge uh, Business School in France. Um, but it's a wine MBA specifically. Um, and it's in English, given in English. And this, the cohort came from all over the world, from France, from Argentina, from Chile, from Japan. Um, from the U.S., obviously from Canada. So it was a great cohort. We spent two years studying the wine business. So it was a traditional MBA, but all the courses were, um, all the cases, sorry, all the cases were wine cases because, you know, business mm-hmm. school is, it's, uses cases to teach business. And, and also we had to do a thesis and I did my thesis on uh, sustainability, what motivates sustainability in wine supply chains. So, you know, it was academic. So I had to choose, you know, I worked on uh, supply chain theory and um, a lot of, and looked at um, seven different regions at the time. And, you know, at the, this was 2012 and there were, it was still rather nascent uh, in the industry. Uh, the whole sustain- certified sustainability was still relatively right. new. Right. So, and I'm guessing that finding that provided the inspiration then for the book because you saw an opportunity to to fill that sort of the gap that the lack there with with great study and great research and and putting it out into the world. Is that true? Yeah, it was. In fact. Um, you know, doing the research for my thesis, I really couldn't find much written about sustainability in the wine, in the wine industry. Um, so the Univ- University of South Australia in Adelaide probably has the best wine library, wine research library in the world. And mm. our cohort spent three weeks there. So the librarian there was very helpful to me in finding what was available, but they're just what there you know were columns and articles and journal articles, but not a not many books and not a lot that was available for the practitioner. So for a new um, you know winemaker or viticulturalist who was interested in exploring sustainability, just wasn't much available for me in doing my thesis. So I you know I spent a lot of time interviewing people and all over the world, you know, wherever I could find them in New Zealand, in South Africa, obviously in California at the Wine Institute. Um, but I felt like there was definitely room for more. And I just decided to write a book, which, was, <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> I, and I'm also taking notes. My wife is a, a librarian for the city of Los Angeles. And oh. And so when we plan trips, it's a combination of where there are really cool libraries that there's also wine. So it sounds like Southeast Australia might be a great place for us yeah, to go visit. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, well, 
one of the things I, I I mean, I love your book is so comprehensively researched and laid out. I mean, it's really uh, it's a one hundred and one in sustainability, but it goes much deeper than that. It's a you know it's a master class as well. So, and and one of the things that I love, which is one of the simpler aspects of it, is right up front in the introduction, um, is you talk about the way I put it, why wine is special. And yeah. you know I mean, I know I always felt that wine was special, like in my belly, but, but you actually put into words and, and gave a four, four point argument for why wine is uniquely positioned to help steer all agriculture towards sustainability. And, you know, all joking aside, that specialness of wine is why I started this podcast. Can you, can you sort of lay out what those reasons are? Like, why, why is wine uniquely positioned to, to have this discussion? Well, I mean, wine is, you know, it's very, of course, um, widely consumed. And in the U.S., increasingly, um, wine is being consumed. So, so that's the first thing. But the other thing is, I discovered that people, I mean, I knew this, and, and certainly my, you know, cl- my study colleagues did, that people want stories. They want the story behind the wine. Um, even if they don't understand wine, they love to have, where is it from? Um, a lot of people discover wine when they're, when they're tourists. Um, so, I, you know, I felt like there was an opportunity to educate people about sustainable agriculture through wine. Uh, people it's love like, to drink, you know, people love to yeah. drink wine. And so to the extent that the story <laughs> includes uh, sustainability, then I thought, here's an opportunity to educate people about sustainability. Yeah, it's like the one product where there is somewhat of an inherent connection directly to the ground where it was grown in a lot of ways, in the sense that, you know, when we label wine, we're, we give it a, a place name a lot most of the time, and as well as a year. So there is this sense of a specific connection, whereas, you know, you buy a head of lettuce or whatever, it could come from any of a hundred farms or be shipped across the country or from another country. And you don't know and or care so much as long as it's the lettuce that you're looking for. Um, yeah. I mean, is, is that... you're right. And the thing is wine, you know, it's a bot, it's an agricultural product, but it's a bottled product that can last for decades or more. Um, it retains its identity. Um, so mm-hmm. you can easily compare uh, sustainability from one region to the next. Um, mm. And people really don't care so much about, you know, where did my lettuce come from? I mean, I'm sure there are some some people who are that picky or, you know, particular. <laughs> about, I think more and more people are, actually. Yeah, exactly. And we all, we kind of have to be, sadly. But, um, but <laughs> yeah. for wine, I think whether you care or not, you know, right? You pick up the bottle it has information about the origin. And so I think it's easy to um, for people to have that kind of, increasingly people want to know where did this product come from? How were the people treated? Who mm-hmm. uh, produced it? What are some of the conditions, environmental conditions, social conditions in those regions? And it's relatively easy to find that. Um, yeah. You know, if you have a bottle of wine, you can you know, jump on the internet and get a lot more information about that wine and that region. Um, so, 
That's why I thought, and you know, drinking wine is fun. And so to the extent that you can integrate stories about sustainability into the story of wine and, you know, winemakers and wineries love to tell stories about their wine in their region and, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely know. (laughs) Uh, So let me just frame everything by asking you, how do you define sustainability? How, or how should we define sustainability? Yeah, I mean, I get that. I get asked that all the time because, I mean, to be honest, I hate the term sustainability because it <laughs> means so many different things, but we're stuck with it. You know, we're stuck with the, the term. And so, you know, I start with the UN definition, you know, the um, really it was um, the UN's had a commission that studied sustainable development. And that's the definition that I think we tend to use was the Brundtland Commission. But it's the using our resources today in a way that conserves resources for the future. I want to read a quote then based on that. You used to just to get things rolling here mm-hmm. uh, from your book. Okay. <laughs> um, or maybe I, actually I might have taken this from your website. Actually, now I, I did. Um, okay. of, of, of all human activity, modern agriculture is the largest single contributor to global greenhouse gas production, to deforestation and to water consumption. Agriculture affects biodiversity, climate change, waste, soil degradation and water scarcity. And agricultural workers and farmers often are poorly compensated for their labor while being exposed to some very harmful chemicals. Wine is no exception. Um, so one of the, you know, I mean, you bring up a ton of stuff there and, mm-hmm. and I, I think that is, you know, clearly part of why I, <laughs> I think this is, we, you and I could talk for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the big issues that I'm just excited to jump right into is, the sort of the lacking of the current certifications on all sides. So you can, for example, get certified sustainable, you know, with the California SIP program, Mm -hmm. but still use chemicals like Roundup and glyphosate. There's no restriction, so to speak, but, you know, there's various grades of, you know, phasing out of the more harmful ones. And then on the other hand, you can get rid of all the harmful chemicals get certified organic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are thinking about your water conservation and what's happening with your land management or, you know, anything in the adjacent environment or the way that your workers are being treated and housed and compensated. Um, Can you, can you talk about some of those limitations and, and the issues and, and what we could be where we need to be headed, basically. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I am such a strong advocate of sustainability is because I do, so sustainable certification, uh, is because I do believe it's more comprehensive and probably leads to many of the results that we want in the sustainability movement, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's kind of broadly uh, described the movement. But you know, organic, um, organic everything, not just wine, but, you know, it's all about the forbearance of the use of chemicals, but it doesn't really deal with any of the other aspects of sustainability. As you say, like, you know, reducing water use, managing waste, um, how you treat people, relationships 
with the communities where you're doing business. Um, so those things are really important, I think, to me. They're important to our future uh, beyond just not using chemicals. I think that's really important. Uh, and frankly, I've met some producers in New Zealand in particular who are or certified organic and also certified sustainable. To me, that's yeah. kind of ideal, right? Yeah, that, that seems like the perfect marriage yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Um, but for, you know, and I get asked, you know, frequently, well, why do sustainable producers get to use chemicals? I mean, you already, you know, you know, wine is notorious, wine grapes are notoriously prone to disease. Yeah. And um, so, you know, producers, growers need something to deal with the diseases. Now, fortunately, in the world of organic viticulture, there have been some major uh, developments and innovations. And so now a lot of organic producers have more um, tools available to them, whereas previously it was just copper and sulfur, which we, we don't have to get into, you know, whether that's good long term for the soil or not. Um, but, <laughs> but we can if you'd like. <laughs> I mean, you know, copper is a heavy metal. So, yeah, you know, it's maybe not a chemical. It's probably um, as, I think, as, harm, as harmful for the soil, but not harmful for the people who use it. Whereas, you know, right. certain chemicals are definitely harmful for, for workers um, who are working in vineyards. And so copper does not have that kind of, you know, that harm to the person, but probably long-term harm to the soil. Um, right. So, so I, you know, so sustainable certified sustainable programs do allow spraying. Um, there are, depending on which region, some regions have chemicals that are definitely uh, forbidden. Um, but but growers are allowed to use some chemicals. And you know, the thing about sustainability, and if you talk about the triple bottom line, I mean, I gave you kind of the old definition for sustainability, but these days, you know, we talk about protecting people, planet, but also the economy. And so yeah. producers need to be able to make a living. I mean, if you are an organic producer or a biodynamic uh, producer and you have a really bad year for, you know, for pests or whatever, mildew, and you don't have uh, tools available to save your crop, it's a really bad year economically for you. Whereas, you know, certified sustainable producers do have some tools they can use to save their crop. And so it, it's not a total loss. So that's one of the reasons why I like sustainable because, you know, let's face it, you know, this is business, right? You talked about how my book is the business of sustainable wine. We want right. wineries to be successful and we, and, and, you know, vineyards to be successful. So chemicals, some chemicals can be used. Now, I think increasingly because of this push toward sustainability and more ju judicious use of chemicals, I think chemical manufacturers are starting to be much more responsive. Um, I was at Unified uh, Wine and Grape Symposium one year and did the sustainability tour, you know, of the trade uh, fair and went to, you know, we visited a lot of producers of chemicals. And I was amazed 
at how much work is being done. So that one example was that I don't remember the specific uh, product, um, but you know you could put one drop on one leaf of a vine and protect the vine. So those are the kinds of things that I wow. think are happening um, in the in in terms of uh, manufacturing of chemicals for the wine industry. And so you protect the vine, you're not spraying, um, and but you know you are protecting your livelihood as well. And then of Do course you- my other concern about organic is that there's not enough. There's no emphasis really on uh, energy reduction. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions reduction, or social responsibility to workers or to communities around um, around the, the vineyards or the winery. Hmm. Yeah, those are good points. Uh, I wanted to, before I dig into some of the other things you said there, I just found out uh, in an interview with the, the chief scientist for the Rodale Institute that they've now, you maybe know about this, but they're, they've developed in, with in cooperation with multiple other organizations, this regenerative organic certification now that mm-hmm. I think they're really trying to push because they too saw the the lack. Uh, I mean, I think the way they tell it, tell it is when they were going for the organic certification, they had to simplify in order to get it standardized and to get it through the bureaucracy. So they, they sort of gave up on some of these wider pushes in areas that we're talking about right now. Um, but now they're, they're trying to make that happen. They're trying to make up for those lacks. And so they, they're pushing this uh, regenerative organic certification, which um, I'm not sure the full scope of everything that goes into it, but it definitely touches on livestock treatment animal welfare as well as the the worker welfare and the social welfare involved in agriculture right and deforestation as well yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. i wonder i'm fascinated by this idea that the the chemical industry is actually starting to be more responsive i wonder you know i'm i'm a little bit of a cynic and i'm wondering if it's because they care or because they're seeing more competition from biological you know the new tools being developed in the biological sphere where there are more organic tools now and pretty soon they may see that you know unless their chemicals are are of comparable safety to Mm -hmm. the biologicals that are being developed they're going to be losing market share before long yeah do you have do you have any sense of that uh yeah i mean i'm for somebody like me who's worked in this space of social responsibility, sustainability for, you know, so many years, it's it's hard not to be cynical, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, um, and, and, from, and actually, I mean, I have, you know, I'm a consultant. I have clients who I know don't care. They don't care, but, you know, they are pragmatic business people. They yeah. understand that the competition... Um, I was, you know, this is really more on the social responsibility side. I had a client, a CEO who said, I need you to help me figure out what I, uh, help me to determine a signature giving program because I'm trying to recruit all these young MBAs and they keep asking me what the company's signature giving program is. And I don't even know what that is. 
<laughs> so, you know, um, and they ended up investing quite a bit of money in a, in a great program to help women and girls, you know, around where they do business. Now, does the CEO care? Probably not. But it's, um, you know, he's pragmatic and he wants to be competitive and so you're right. I mean, I think I don't know that they're doing it. Now, I won't say that there aren't some chemical companies that believe that, you know, they have a responsibility uh, for the right. future of the planet. But by and large, I would say, you know, they're just trying to make sure they are providing the products that their customers want and, their, or, and need and their customers want products that are less harmful. To the environment. And so that's what they are, you know, putting their R&D people busy on doing, you know, so well, I'll, I'll take it. I don't, you know. <laughs> no. And I think, you know, really one of the underlying messages that I want to get across by getting the word out through this podcast is the power that we as consumers and individuals have to to push things and in a direction to make a difference yeah. in a positive sense and and you just spoke to that really clearly i mean it's we can't rely on a top down solution it comes from everybody making individual choices that show the people at the top that they need to change direction and provide what we're asking for and i think right. that's that's really inspiring because yeah. it does shows that we can do stuff, you know, just by the kind of wine we buy, for example. Absolutely. You know? And even within the wine industry, I mean, the you know, not everybody is sustainable in the industry. I'm excited about how much better organic wine tastes now than it did, yeah. you know, decades ago. And, you know, part of that is just producers needing, you know, better products, paying maybe more paying more attention. Uh, getting uh, other kinds of tools available to them. So, yeah, I mean, it's not because consumers want that. You know, consumers yeah. want, um, you know, we could have a whole debate about whether organic product is healthier for you or for the human or healthier for the planet or both. <laughs> yeah. But it's what and, consumers and, want. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny, they're... Uh, I know studies are being done to now do trials again at the Rodale Institute. I was just studying them, but they're, you know, they, uh, they're doing side-by-side -side trials now to determine like the nutrition content in, uh, this is produce, obviously mm -hmm. wine is a whole different thing. And mm -hmm. I think uh, approaching wine from a health standpoint, I think is more about the absence of harmful chemicals than about right. like, you're going to get you know, stronger and healthier by right. drinking exactly. organic wine. Yeah. Um, you're just, you just are going to avoid bad chemicals that get sprayed on the grapes and have mm -hmm. residue in the wine. But well, you know, I think um, for and consumers, I don't know that consumers really understand uh, the distinctions between sustainably produced, organic, biodynamic. Um, I think they just want to feel like the, you know, we're being more responsible in the industry. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's incumbent on the industry to, to educate consumers about sustainability. I mean, I think they understand organic because we've been buying organic produce and organic stuff, you know, for quite a while. But I don't think consumers really understand what sustainable wine is. And, um, you know, happily, uh, a lot of the impetus for sustainability 
in wine came from within the industry and not from consumers or, you know, activists like coffee, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and yeah, another great point to underline that the, the importance of the consumer's choice and, and thank you for getting me back on track. Mm -hmm. I, (laughs) uh, since you brought it up, how do we, I mean, I, I want to talk about a quote from your book. Um, and and this ties into what you just said. Um, This isn't verbatim, but you said, wine's essential role is to contribute to the quality of leisure time and social interactions. So, I mean, earlier you talked about, you know, wine is fun, and that's kind of one of its assets, really. It's fun to drink and fun to drink with with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the reason this struck me, I'm sure that wasn't a big profound line for you when you were writing it, but I guess the reason it struck me is because within the wine industry, I think we tend to center you know, we, we center our marketing and our messaging around very technical aspects of the way wine is, you know, grown and produced, you know, made, um, because it's the center of our world, but for the consumer, you know, it's not the center of the world. It's more like the cherry or the whipped cream. If you're not into cherries on the top of their Sunday. And so how, how do we communicate? How, how do we in the wine industry who are trying to, you know, run truly sustainable businesses um, effectively communicate the sustainable values that we're, that we're producing our wine to customers and, and, and bridge that gap, you know, between what their priorities are and what our priorities are, as well as address some of the confusion that you talked about between all these various certifications that all of them need a, some level of explanation to, to dig into really vital aspects of how they're different, which. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I think probably for um, millennials, I've been lately been kind of exploring kind of natural wines and the raw wine festivals. I think millennials care about um, all of those aspects of sustainable production. You know, what were the chemicals that were used? How, you know, how, how were the people treated? Whereas, you know, maybe their parents' generation didn't care so much about that. So they do care about those things. And so the industry has to figure out a way to communicate those beyond taste. I mean, I'm not going to disparage natural wine, but there's a big difference between, <laughs> you know, some of the natural wines I've tasted and some of these fine Bordeaux wines or, you know, Oregon Pinots or, you know, there's a difference in the taste to me, the taste Mm -hmm. profile. So, um, so I think increasingly consumers care about many of those aspects as much as they do taste. Um, Although I was, um, I participated, you know, I've been traveling everywhere and I've been talking uh, last week was talking to some Italian producers and, you know, one of the things they they talk about is that we don't stress the sensory aspects of sustainability enough Um, that, you know, we can't, you know, that we, it could become boring to consumers to talk about, Oh, the energy that was, we didn't use or energy reduction or chemicals that we didn't use, or it's a, you know, it's kind of a downer, you know, (laughs) a negative story. It's about climate change. It's about chemicals. It's about, you know, the poor workers, you know, seasonal labor. So how do we make sure that, and those are important, you know, how do we measure who's doing what on 
on a no, on those various aspects of wine production. But I think we we also have to stress the sensory aspects, the beautiful landscapes where the you know the wine comes from, the culture um, that's associated with production. You know, especially in many parts of the world where wine has been produced for centuries. So, yeah, I think we've got to figure out a way to do to do both, you know, and fortunately, you know, for I think increasingly Americans are starting to think about to consume wine with food. You know, that's not yeah. been the tradition. And the more that we, you know, talk about which wine goes with what food, I think, you know, you can weave in a sustainability story as well as this wine is going to taste great with your turkey, you know, at Thanksgiving right. or, you know, beef stew when it's cold, whatever. So, so yeah. So combining the sensory aspects with some of these sustainable attributes, I think is going to be very critical. Um, and maybe we'll get to a point where we don't even have to talk about it when, you know, everybody's sustainable. <laughs> Right. Or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, that's my imagined song. I know, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, do you have any? I mean, and I just want to clarify: you're talking when you talk about sense the sensory aspects. Are you saying how the agriculture directly relates to the quality of the wine in the bottle at, at yeah. the end of the day? And yeah. do we, do. As opposed to just like any wine obviously has sensory aspects and we should talk about its fruit flavors or its textures or its, you know, those kind of things. You're talking about specifically how does our farming ultimately impact the complexity, the textures, everything that we, the flavors in the wine. And do, do, do we have, do you have any data about that or have you seen any studies about that? I've, you know, I've seen some studies. I haven't, you know, I keep trying to get winemakers to, you know, admit that uh, if the wine is biodynamic, it tastes, I don't want to say tastes better, um, but that it better reflects the, um, the terroir, that it reflects the place um, mm-hmm. that it comes from, the place where the grapes were grown. Um, I do believe that. And I think you know, winemakers, you know, they're hesitant to do that because, you know, it's, it starts to sound like then conventional wine isn't good, right? <laughs> so, uh, but I do believe that. I definitely think uh, some biodynamic wines really are just amazing um, and an amazing representation of the place where they're produced. Um yeah, and I think more and more the the where we're finding some of the the connection there is the in the soil science where when you have a microbially diverse soil that results in more pheromones and terpenes and all kind all the things that we actually do sense in the grapes like there there's a greater communication from the soil to the grapes and that actually can translate directly into the wine. And I think, you know, the science is now sort of backing that up. Um, And it's only a matter of time, I think, before there are some sensory comparative things too. Of course, you don't totally destroy soil microbiology by farming conventionally. So it's, there's always going to be, you know, great, great tasting conventional wines, I'm I'm imagining. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
but yeah, I think, you know, at least scientifically, we have some evidence to point in that direction already, uh, which is exciting for yeah, me. Yeah, it is exciting. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I believe that and I do, you know, you're right. I mean, there are some conventional, I think we're all going to come to a place, conv- there are conventional producers who use techniques that are used in biodynamic production that maybe are used in organic production, um, certainly, you know, in sustainable production to enliven the soil, bring life to the soil. Um, so, yeah, it's the lines between conventional um, and um, sustainable. We'll just use sustainable as a large category of organic okay. biodynamic. You know, I think the yeah. lines are going to be blurred between those, but I, I definitely think um, some of the biodynamic producers, you can just taste a quality of the wine that you wouldn't taste in that same conventional wine, maybe from that same region. And I, you know, I drink all kinds of wine, so I'm not saying that I don't. um, I think there are some fine wines from Bordeaux. Bordeaux is notorious for their, uh, you know, spraying of of chemicals. Um, Right. Because it's, you know, it's traditional. But I do think that just the attention that's paid to the production of the wine kind of shines through as well. Um, so, you know, there's not a lot of manipulation. You know, maybe there were, you know, chemicals sprayed in the vineyard, but there's not a lot of manipulation of the wine in the, in the winery. Um, so all of those things that care... Um, I mean, I, you know, one of my favorite wines is Ponte Canet. And mm. not that I can afford much Ponte Canet, but uh, <laughs> when I, I was doing my thesis, it was the first um, person, Jean-Michel Combe was the first person I interviewed. And he, and Ponte Canet is biodynamic. They don't talk about it very much. Um, oh, they're yeah. starting to do it a little bit more. But, you know, my in my conversation with him and with others, I mean, there are biodynamic producers in Oregon that I speak with as well and spend time with. Um, I just think they spend a lot more time in the vineyard and with the vines and that there's a lot of care and attention uh, that they give, um, which may also explain why, the you know, those wines have such a quality of flavor it won't right. taste better but you know it's also care and attention uh in the vineyard as well well you, and you 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 brought up uh, ponte canet and then your website lists a lot of your favorites i think uh, a, a very great list of you know internationally from california to france to new zealand and australia everywhere uh people who are doing great farming and making great wines. I, I remember, uh, I mean, I think that's just a great resource if anybody wants some ideas to start yeah. with your website. And what, can you just, which website is that on that I'm it's talking about? That, that... It's discoversustainablewine.com. That's it. Okay. Different from your business website. Yeah. Um, my business but... website, you know, covers a bunch of different industries, although, you know, more and more I'm just working in wine, which is great. <laughs> but you know when I started my consulting obviously I worked with you know I worked with coffee companies I worked with a variety of companies I've done some work for chocolate companies um 
you know, chocolate manufacturers or I guess cocoa powder manufacturers. Um, but now increasingly I'm doing more and more work in, in wine. Well, and I want to go back. You also, in talking about Bordeaux, you talked about how much they have sprayed. And I remember from your book, you, you talk about um, a lawsuit uh, that happened there uh, where a worker, I, I believe it was Bordeaux, that was um, Burgundy. Or a worker. Yeah, yeah. That, that was Burgundy. Burgundy. Okay, where yeah. somebody who got uh, sick from the sprays yeah. successfully sued the winery. The winery, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. If you want to. No, but in Bordeaux, I mean, I think you know it's been documented that Bordeaux producers spray more than almost any other region. Um, yeah. And uh, there have been protests really amazing <laughs> protests, lions, yeah. they've called them, where they literally lie in the streets. Um, oh, wow. Protesters, there's been a couple of really um, uh, well, uh, well done documentaries uh, that have aired, you know, on French television about the impact of spraying of pesticides in the wine region and, the, and uh, children who become sick in schools nearby uh, from spraying. And, it really, you know, it's not required to spray that much. I mean, you talk to some producers and they say, well, this is how my daddy did it. This is how my grandfather did it. This is how we do yeah. it here. You know, there's that tradition. Um, and it, you know, it requires, I mean, the California uh, Wine Institute, the S- Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, did a lot of work of educating producers. The same thing happened with Sustainable Wine New Zealand. It's not just about certification. It's also educating uh, producers, growers, and winemakers and wineries about, you know, the impact of spraying and how it just really isn't, it's not always required um, to spray as much as as winery or, you know, viticulturalists have sprayed. It's just not always as, but that's just been a tradition. And I think just documenting um, when you spray, how much you spray, where you spray has really focused producers, um, let's say in California or in the so-called new world um, to the, you know, the need, whether you really need all that. Um, right. To, to spray yeah. less and spray more effectively to time right. it. You know, they know the cycles of the, the, the pests and the fungal infections right. and they can, they can like dial in that spray to time it perfectly. So they're much more effective and efficient. Right. Yeah. Uh, I had a, uh, a producer in uh, New Zealand say to me, well, you know, we, I only use Roundup once. I do, I do one, once, you know, once a season I use Roundup and then that's it. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> you know, so I've learned, you know, I don't use it roundup as much. And then others, another one I visited also in New Zealand. And the whole time we were talking, I could hear like a lawnmower going. And he said, oh, that's our, our intern from Italy. And this is what he does all day. He wax weeds because we don't use any chemicals. Right. <laughs> you know, it's labor intensive. That's a great internship. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's tedious, but you can feel like you're, saving the planet yeah, <laughs> at the same time absolutely it's labor intensive but it's so so in other words we have choices and yeah you know we make choices that are easy sometimes and then we make choices that are more responsible well so one big issue that i wanted to talk about was just 
worker treatment in the wine industry and and just the the labor aspect I, I feel like you know i don't know if you'd agree but it seems like one of the larger areas for improvement uh and i know california has been through a a, a reckoning in some ways uh in terms of just having regulations and from the epa and from the mm-hmm. labor department that anybody who's working in california is protected by some of the best you know employment laws in in america at least um but you know what could we be doing better in in that realm and and yeah you know i i, I sort of have a theory that a, a bigger reckoning hasn't happened of course because we have a labor force that's culturally very separate from the ownership and and so there's a big divide there and there you know that that results in people who are more afraid to speak out uh maybe don't even speak the same language and and therefore there's not going to be lawsuits related to these things but I, i'm guessing you might even have some statistics about you know worker illnesses and cancers and things that develop from these sprays that we're using uh that you know to the extent that re- they're reported show a clear you know uh, pattern of you know what we're doing in the vineyard and what's happening to the people who are working in the vineyard yeah can you I talk mean, about that yeah i i actually don't have much in the way of statistics related specifically to to wine um you know there's you know obviously t- statistics you can find in california about kind of seasonal labor and migrant labor and you know the impact health impacts that sort of thing um, but I, but you know, I think anecdotally, um, producers know um, what you know what's happening. I'm, sadly, I mean, I was in Oregon, I guess, last summer, not this past summer. Nobody's been anywhere this past summer. <laughs> but um, you know, and there was a lot of concern about um, the fact that they just there the labor wasn't available even because of our immigration laws. Um, you know, but also if you, when you travel in California, a lot of the workers are not illegals, you know, they have been living in California or in the wine regions for, you know, for decades, if, you know, if not longer. So, um, you know, I, I, there are some examples of some wineries that are really trying hard to do the right thing to, you know, give training in different, in, in Spanish and in English for how to use um, equipment and how to use, you know, chemicals. Um, and I think more of that has to happen. And, you know, then there, you know, the kind of the, the horror stories you hear about housing um, of workers and, you know, the Sonoma growers have really taken this on and have, you know, have been building decent housing for, for workers, which I think is, you know, it's a, it's a, the, it's the least we can do, honestly. Um, but you know, there are issues everywhere in the world, not just here. We know about them because we hear about, you know, stories of, you know, what happens to agricultural workers in California, uh, seasonal labor, but you know, seasonal labor is everywhere. You know, there are issues about, you know, Greek, uh, workers in, in Europe, in, you know, some who come to Bordeaux, there are other issues in Italy about very poor people who are working 
the harvest and who are not treated well. So, you know, we really have to, you know, as an industry, we need to do a lot more in terms of social responsibility. Um, Yeah. Are there any uh, wine producing regions that you would raise a red flag about in terms of poor worker treatment? Yeah. Or is it, or is it more producer dependent rather than regional? Uh, No, it's South Africa, you know, South Africa. Yeah, Yeah. definitely South Africa. Um, And you mean their um, human rights watch did um, a a study of sort of labor conditions in, in fruit, in the fruit industry, but they, you know, specifically identified uh, wine grapes as well. There are some really horrible, stories um it's changing somewhat but not nearly fast enough Uh, so in in south africa a lot of the workers housing is tied to their employment Mm, so so it's almost like indentured servitude yeah so if you are if you you live on the property or you live nearby um and if you no longer work there then you can't live there anymore um, so that's, you know, those kinds of stories. So you're, you're tied to that producer and you really don't have any power or leverage. Um, there were actually human rights watch and I don't know, that was a few years ago, but, um, there are actually cases where people were being paid in brandy, really, you know, <laughs> harsh brandy, some, some, you know, currency, but also maybe, you know, 75% money and 25% brandy, which, oh boy. you know, it's not healthy. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah so I, I would say that South Africa, and they're trying, you know, when I talk to producers there, they like to say, oh, there's, you know, a few bad apples, you know, a few bad producers, but um, they did take, a, take it upon themselves to create a new kind of code of conduct related to labor in the wine industry and it requires, um, supply chain, uh, sustainability. So they, you know, to be certified sustainable under this labor practice, uh, labor initiative, your entire supply chain has to be certified sustainable in terms of labor. So I think that's positive and, you know, they're trying really hard to, um, enforce it. Their, um, system Bolaget, which is the, the Swedish uh, retailer, wine spirits, wine and spirits retailer, happens to be the largest uh, wine and spirits retailer in the world, uh, just because it's a monopoly. You know, it's a state store, basically. <laughs> Got it. And okay. there's a lot of consumption, too. Uh, but they right. have spent a lot of time in South Africa, literally sending delegations there to observe and make sure that, you know, they are following uh, this new uh, it's called WITA, the Wine Industry um, Ethical Trade, um, you know, initiative. I think that's what that stands for. Um, and so the Scandinavians are really—they don't just rely on producers saying, "Oh, we signed it and we did it." They literally send delegations to the country to observe and do their own, you know, in-person. Research. So that's one extreme. That's probably the worst in terms of regions. Um, I think, you know, on the opposite end, you know, Chile has a real, their, their program is one of the newest uh, certification programs, and they have uh, a requirement that 
producers to be certified must show that they have uh, a management policy of social responsibility. They can't just say, oh, we've got a social responsibility manager. They need to know that you have really integrated this into your operation. And there are, you know, ways that they try to, um, to try to document that. And then on the other, another one is New Zealand. And New Zealand is unique because they have labor shortages in New Zealand. And so they, yeah. they, they too import labor uh, to work the harvest, but they've done it in a way they work with the development agency of New Zealand. Um, they recruit people from the Pacific to come and they come often the same workers come every year. They return home. They make a commitment that some of their uh, earnings will go to a social project back home. And so over time, they become very knowledgeable about the wine industry. Uh, but then they go back home and they take the resources back home to improve uh, the situation. So that's what I, I really like. I like talking about that one because I think it's positive. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I would love to uh, end on a positive note. <laughs> um, and there's so many things that I don't want to take your time to ask, but I'd love to talk to you about just things like you're, I think you're a fan of Oregon Pinot and and I'd love to get your take on Oregon versus Burgundy and, you know, your experiences there. But also I wanted to point out some fun things from your book. The, I, I love that you have these sort of surprising things where it's the, the use of French oak barrels actually can be carbon negative just by uh, over the studies that have been done. I think that's one of the things that you talk yeah. about. And then, and then um, this, this really fascinating thing that there's sort of this line that divides the U.S. starting middle Ohio and ending sort of in coastal Texas, where if you're west of it, it is a smaller carbon footprint to buy West Coast wine. And if you're east of it, it's a smaller carbon footprint to buy wine imported from France even. Is, well, yeah. Did I get that you kind close? Of yeah. So because wine from California is trucked across the country. Right. And wine from Europe that comes into the East Coast. And I think we probably drink more European wines on the East Coast anyway, maybe because of this. But it comes by ship. Right. And Which so is... there's less of a carbon footprint for that right. wine that comes... Uh, by ship from Europe to the East Coast versus wine that comes from the West Coast by truck across the country to Ohio, Illinois. Um, the Wine Institute likes to take issue with that, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting tidbit. I, you know, yeah. I'm sure it's one study. I'm sure there are other things and complications that are yeah there so well. oh, we could we could do another podcast just on climate because there are so many ways in which the wine industry can reduce its own carbon footprint though it's largely impacted by um you know carbon emissions that are not of the industry's own making um mm. but you know so the industry has to also be advocates for you know climate action by government, but at the same time, there are a number of things that, that the industry can do itself to reduce its carbon footprint. And one, I'll just give you one, is lighter yeah, weight please. bottles. Lighter weight lighter. bottles. Yep. There's Absolutely. no reason why wine has to be in heavy bottles. And 
Unfortunately, less expensive wine typically is in heavier bottles because it gives the impression that it's a better quality wine. Um, right. Yeah, it's not required. A lighter weight not bottle does not break. And Frank and the System Bolaget and the the Canadian uh, again, you know, Monopoly state stores are requiring. Um, they will only put wines on their shelf that have a certain bottle weight. Or so, below, right? It's yeah. like a maximum bottle yeah. weight. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think great. that's really smart. I love that. <laughs> Another positive yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I, we, we like to say it's what's in the bottle, not the bottle that's important. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just to send us off, what, what other, I mean, what, if there's one or two big changes that you think, you know, are the greatest opportunities or, or for the wine industry or just that you'd like to see in the next few years, what would those be? Yeah. So, um, energy reduction, um, you know, when I, <laughs> a lot of producers in France say easy for you Americans to say, because you're building newer wineries and we have you know, older wineries and it's not, you know, but solar, you can add solar power, solar panels. Um, so I think just more responsible energy usage would be something that I think the wine industry needs to take on. Obviously understanding dry farming, uh, because mm. drought, we're stuck. I think we're going to be stuck with drought, um, you know, on the West. And certainly there's drought in Argentina, there's drought in many regions as well. So starting to understand dry farming better um, yeah. is is a way. And then there's a lot of great research that's being done on the microbiome and are there some ways in which we can reduce the temperature of the vine below ground so that even with rising temperatures, um, the vine is not as affected. Um, some very interesting research being done in Napa and in Italy uh, by growers. Yeah. yeah. Cover crops are and cover a crops. huge part of that, right? The, yeah. That, I mean, I've heard studies where it's like a 30 degree temperature drop yeah. if you and just keep so a cover easy. crop. And cover crops, yeah. so it's a 30, it's a, it's a reduction in the temperature, but it's also um, requires less use of uh, herbicides or fertilizers. There's a lot of, uh, you know, natural nutrients that will, can be retained in the soil using cover crops. And that's something a lot of conventional producers are using as well. So that's one yeah. of those techniques that started, uh, you know, within in the sustainable wine world that now is being used very widely, I think, by producers, uh, conventional producers. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. How How can we learn more about you and what you're doing or, you know, if somebody wants to get in touch with you for whatever reason, do you want them to? Yeah. <laughs> and, and how would they do that? I definitely want them to. So, I mean, I do, I mean, I'm on Twitter. So at wine sustainable, I'm also at San E Liz Taylor, S A N E L I Z Taylor, T A Y L O R. Um, my website is discover sustainable wine. Uh, you can write me at Sandra at discoversustainablewine.com. So those Got are it. all the ways you can find me. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sandra. This has been fantastic. And like I said, I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but I got to let you go. Thank <laughs> you so much, of your I time. And I, You can tell I love talking about all these, these uh, subjects. As, so. Totally. As do I. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. 
we'll do it again. Hopefully. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Sandra Taylor as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. I definitely don't take your time and attention for granted. I'm Adam Huss, the creator and producer of the Organic Wine Podcast. And unlike many other podcasts, we don't ask for donations. But if you value this podcast and want to support it, the easiest and most yummy way to do that is to buy a bottle of Centralis wine. Centralis is the winery that I started with my wife, Wendy, and it is dedicated to sustainable organic values, transparency, and inclusion. One of the ways Centralis promotes those values is by supporting this podcast. So if you buy Centralis wines, you get delicious wine and you support this podcast at the same time. You can buy Centralis Wines at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Thank you.